Hey everyone, before we get started, I just wanted to say we have only a few days left in our spring fundraising drive. So if you would like to support the Institute and help us continue to do everything that we do, including um, run this podcast, go to youngchicago.org give. Also, there are a few days left in our summer sale. So we haven't adjusted the prices in our online store since we launched the store in 2017 or so. Um, and so we're going to start doing that in July. So we're having a sale in advance of that. Um, there's an additional 15% off if you use the code 15%, so the word percent, um, in our online store through June 30th. Thanks. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Jungian Ever After, a podcast about fairy tales through the lens of Jungian analysis. I am your host, Reza, and joining me as always is my co-host and Jungian analyst, Dr. Adina Davidson. Today we're going to conclude our two-part coverage of Snow White. The first part we talked about was archetypal evil, but today will be a more lighthearted discussion, hopefully, more or less, as we center around anima and images of the feminine. So why don't you take us off, Adina? So Snow White, starting in the grim version of the fairy tale and hitting, I think, its epitome in the Disney movie, offers an example of negative anima and suppression of the feminine. As we move into 21st century versions of the fairy tale, we see a more complex snow or anima figure. Snow is viewed as both powerful and nurturing in the 21st century television show, Once Upon a Time. The evil queen is cruel, but has reasons for her hatred and has the capacity to change and grow. So in the 21st century version, Snow is more complicated and the evil queen is not just pure archetypal evil, but is human. Yeah, I think that was just a large part of our confusion when we read through the story and then watched the Disney movie was just to go from such an independent and self-empowered snow that we had seen in Once Upon a Time and just switch to one that's very meek and really utterly lacking in agency. That It was just very disappointing, sort of to say the least. And I thought boring. I was like, wait, Snow White is boring? But she was in both the Grammy and the Disney. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what I mean when I use the word anima, and then we'll get into how that applies to Snow White. Anima is the unlived and unconscious elements of psyche that are labeled feminine in those who experience themselves as male. Animus is the unlived and unconscious elements of psyche that are labeled masculine and those who experience ourselves as female. Anima is experienced very differently in different individuals and at different historical times. So, for example, anima may be experienced positively if a male had a mother who was loving and warm, or negatively if many of the female caretakers in a child's life were hostile, abandoning, or cruel. Okay, so I'm at like a little bit of a loss here. Why is the experienced gender important? I feel like as someone who's transgender, I kind of am always like, why does gender matter? So what makes anima different for each? 
For for each gender? Yeah. So, again, for those who experience ourselves as female, and I would argue, but I would argue very cautiously as a cis female, that this is true for trans women as well. For those of us who experience ourselves as female, things that we call masculine or that we experience as masculine are going to be tend to be imaged as other and as masculine. So, for example, when we're dreaming, the I in the dream is going to be feminine. And we're often going to have some masculine characters in our dreams. Those masculine characters in our dreams are going to tell us something about that animus image, that image of the other. So that happens for us as individuals. It also happens for cultures. And where written culture in particular has tended to be written by men, the female characters in fairy tales, TV shows, myths, often give us a portrayal of the collective anima, of the culture's view of femininity. Does that help a little bit? Okay, so it ends up kind of making sense that the snow from the 30s would fail to meet our expectations so dramatically because our collective ideal of womanhood has sort of shifted so much since then. And then also, I'm sure all male creators, if this is kind of their anima, right? Exactly. A man is going to tend to write female characters out of his own inner experience of anima. So in the 1930s or in the 17th century, that which was considered feminine and other by men looked quite different than that which was considered feminine and perhaps even less other than in a 21st century writer's room. Okay, and then this is sort of, it's Latin, right? So anima is the feminine, animus, the masculine? Exactly, yes. Jungians, we love our Latin. We throw it in at any point. So as I kind of already said, the perception of anima, the perception of the feminine changes as culture changes. In times and places where gender roles are seen as more fluid, where gender is treated more equally, anima images tend to be more complex and nuanced. Where gender roles are more rigid, anima tends to split into an all-good, sexless, passive, sweet feminine and an evil, sexual, aggressive, cruel feminine. This splitting of anima, this splitting of what is actually an internal unconscious image and psyche gets projected onto actual women and into the collective expectations of women's behavior. As we have room to be more complicated in our experience of womanhood or manhood, our anima or animus, our inner image of femininity or masculinity, also has more room to be more individual and interesting. Jung, in his essay on Anima and Animus, says, No man is so entirely masculine that he has nothing feminine in him. The fact is, rather, 
that very masculine men have, carefully guarded and hidden, a very soft emotional life, often incorrectly labeled as feminine. Unquote. As these feminine traits are repressed, they accumulate in the unconscious. So as these soft emotional traits are repressed, they gather together in the unconscious and coalesce as an anima image. This anima image becomes the receptacle for all of the man's personal and the culture's collective demands of the feminine. The unconscious anima is projected onto human women in real life or in stories. And we can tell a great deal about anima from the stories that are told by any particular culture. It's honestly kind of hard to believe that Jung wrote that around the same time as the Snow White animation was released because it seems like what he's saying is a fairly progressive notion that we're kind of struggling with even now in terms of incorrectly described as feminine, right? That these are just emotional things that men should be able to experience without it having a negative connotation or without it needing to be one thing or another. Like these are things that humans. I think that's exactly Jung's point is that the core of Jungian theory is the idea that all human beings have all of the archetypes. And so no human experience is truly alien or truly other for any human being at the archetypal level or at the layer of the collective unconscious. Right. Yeah, and even though I'm sure this was not on Jung's radar at all, I feel like it makes strong arguments for things like just being non-binary. You embody all aspects, so what does it matter? I really agree with that, actually. It's something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. I think that Jungian theory offers some guideposts for a new understanding of gender. Jung argues we all have all of the archetypes, but we only consciously express some of them. And we can only consciously express some of them because, you know, we've only got our limited human lifespans and our limited human ego consciousness. So this includes the fact that most of us experience ourselves as one or the other gender, the gender binary, as we're calling it. But as Jungian theory makes clear, we all contain all of the possibilities, including all of the possible ways that we might express or experience gender. I don't think Jung would have understood (laughs) a non-binary conception of gender at all. But I think his theory really opens up a path for a new psychological understanding of that experience. I also, I really don't want to leave anyone with the impression that Jung was a feminist. His theory may open up space for new ways to approach the psychology of gender. I think it does. But Jung himself had a very complicated and often repressive view of women. For example, he thought that the main problem with the United States in the 1920s was that too many of our women were going to college, making them unnatural. Yeah, that's that's not great. No. I'm sure he wasn't thinking about gender as a spectrum with his theories, but I really like your take here that that 
framework applies well. And hopefully we'll sort of keep iterating on that to make things like being non-binary more acceptable. And I just want to say saying stuff is unnatural. I feel like that's just kind of an overused and meaningless term that is sometimes just applied to things. And and I think it was actually particularly used as a way to put women back in their place. Mm. And being a natural woman was good. Being an unnatural woman is bad. And doing things that were considered masculine made you unnatural. So it was really a way of enforcing gender norms. And has kind of continued from battlefront to battlefront where it was sort of women's rights were the thing at that time. Then later on, gay rights, so gay people aren't natural. And, and then as gay people are more accepted, it moves on to become gender and trans people and non-binary. Although I feel like most of the focus is on trans women and trans men, not as much that kind of in-between. I think people just don't get that kind of in the same way that they ignore bi people. I think that's exactly right. I think it's kind of like in my generation, people thought bi people were either gay people pretending to be bi or straight people pretending to be bi, but they weren't really. And I think that's a similar phenomena that's happening in the yeah. Binary conversation. <laughs> but anyway, back to Jung and Snow White. One of the things that you had been kind of implying is if we all have all the archetypes, there's no reason we can't express and present ourselves in whatever way we're most comfortable with. And this may be no particular gender at all, even, or anywhere on that gender continuum. I really think this is a fascinating place for 21st century Jungian psychologists to push the theory forward. It's not our job as 21st century psychologists to just keep restating what Jung said. It's our job to take it and think about, well, how does it apply to what's going on in psyche and in the world now. And I think this is one of those places. Back to Snow White. Jung goes on to say, so long as the anima is unconscious, she is always projected. What he means by this is until men individually and culture collectively integrate the feminine, quote-unquote, feminine aspects of psyche, women will be forced to bear the split into good, passive, sweet, nurturing versus bad, aggressive, cruel, and rejecting. Women will have to either be good girls or in the kind of classic, you're either a Madonna or you're a whore, right? right. You're either a good girl or you're a bad girl, and you can't actually be a woman because a woman is complicated. Right. Um, and men will feel that they need to crush or repress their own weakness, vulnerability, and emotionality as much as possible, so that men and are also split. Yeah, I mean, I think about growing up as male from birth until 20, roughly, and I think we've certainly started on the path towards breaking down these divides, 
We see many more couples with a woman as primary earner and man in more of a nurturing role at home. I definitely had some of those role models growing up in my community, and they seemed like great dads, did the cooking and everything. It was cool to see, but there's still plenty of work to be done at scale because many, many more communities are not like that at all. And certainly our female politicians always have a tightrope to walk between being seen as feminine to sort of meet that gendered expectation, but also to be masculine enough to be capable of wielding power as though that's a requirement. And if they lean too much one way or the other, they become considered unfit to lead or too aggressive. If you're too feminine, you can't be a strong leader. And if you're too strong, and then you're too aggressive. Yeah, yeah it's a very vanishingly thin tightrope politicians have to walk on. So this splitting that, that you're talking about with politicians, we see, I think, in its really extreme form in both the Disney and the Grimm version of Snow White. Snow is all goodness and sweetness, childish innocence and dependency. The queen is an independent adult, but she's all cruelty, sadism, rage, and jealousy. It's not until we meet the snow of Once Upon a Time, written in the 21st century, that we see a Snow White who can be brave and vulnerable, loving and aggressive, maternal and a fierce hero, etc. Of course, Snow White from Once Upon a Time is also an impossible ideal. We cannot be everything all at once. It's too big a burden. Yeah, I think that certainly contributed to the show's popularity among women, though, just having three major female leads play such complex and powerful characters between Snow White, to some extent Regina, who I like to say Regina instead of the evil queen, because in this instance, she becomes a much more complex character. Yes, she is the villain at first, but as they move forward, she works on her own inward stuff and they end up allying it becomes much more interesting in that way. And then, of course, the very central main character, the savior, is the daughter of Snow White and Prince Charming. So you just have these three leads and that jumps through all kinds of stories and stuff, which may additionally lean towards a more uh, feminine audience. But I think... It was just so much fun seeing these women in powerful positions using magic and riding horses and using bows, all kinds of stuff. Right. And really having full agency over their own lives. Yeah. They weren't dependent, childlike creatures ever. They might be good, they might be bad, they might be both, but they could be both women and independent and powerful. And they were all mothers. And I was going to say that about Regina, actually, was that even at her worst, she loved her adopted child. She loved Henry. Yeah. And that love, that maternal love, was really what allowed her to grow into something more than the evil queen. And it's really something that, again, if we go to that kind of classic split between Madonna and whore, 
mothers are only allowed to be all good. And bad women, bad girls are never allowed to be mothers. Right. And certainly not loving mothers. Because who would settle down with the bad girl, right? Right. Anyway, I think that whole kind of sense of why this show appealed so much to women and why it appealed so much to us is probably correct. Marie-Louise von Franz also has written a great deal about fairy tales and about anima and animas. And she points out that the split into good and bad anima suppresses the ability of women to develop as individuals. So that when men do this splitting of their own internal feminine and then project that onto real women, that actually inhibits women's ability to develop, to individuate, to become who we really are, and causes terrible anguish. I would argue that this split also suppresses the ability of men to develop as individuals and that they also suffer. I can imagine that it would be extremely painful to have to suppress all vulnerability and emotions other than anger. Maybe equally painful as having to suppress our independence and power. Yeah, I think it can be very damaging. I mean, I grew up in a household where my father definitely was very sensitive. So it's not that that kind of thing was stressed, but there's just societal pressures growing up presumed male that definitely led me to bottle up my emotions a good deal of the time. And after my dad died, and I was 15 at the time, I didn't cry for about a year, in part out of a sort of misguided notion that I needed to be strong for my mother and sister. And I, I kind of forgot about this, but we were talking about it recently, and my mom said, yeah, I remember someone said to you, since your brother is going for a year abroad, you know, my older brother, that you're the man of the house now and you need to look out for your mother and sister, which, like, absolutely not. You know, if we were in war times in the 1600s or something and I needed to protect the house from bandits, okay, maybe. But the idea that a 15-year-old in 21st century can do anything to support their family is really putting way too much pressure on that individual, particularly when my mother is an engineer and making a perfectly good salary. It's not like I had to step it up to bring in more money for the house or anything. And I think also particularly when that 15-year-old has just had such a traumatic loss. I mean, that's a, just an insane thing to say. And I believe that that bottling up of feeling must have been such hidden anguish for you. And I wonder if, again, that repression of all natural feeling is why men are more likely to be violent. If the only emotion you can express is anger, then all of your feelings, all of your emotional life is going to go into anger and you're much more likely to explode. I honestly think that seems very plausible. And something that just occurred to me is that a space that I am in majority of the time is the world of gaming. And we've been working on making that space more diverse in terms of gender things, trying to get more women into esports, etc. But a bunch of games, you really just 
see all kinds of what we call toxicity. Just people really raging when when they lose, especially on certain team games. There's an expectation that oh gosh, if I do badly in this, someone you know on my own team even because you get paired up with random people is going to flame me for doing poorly. And I wonder if it's just people are repressing so much emotion generally in their lives that then this space where they just have the safety of anonymity to spew forth their anger with no repercussions, they just do it. And it's it's a really tough thing in gaming, honestly. I, I also think that losing is a real symbol of vulnerability. Mm. And so if you're not allowed to be vulnerable and your team or you lost, then the best way to kind of repress that and mask that is with this explosion of powerful anger flaming. Right. And it's never, oh, I made mistakes. It's, oh, this other person on my team, they were terrible. They made mistakes. Or if the game has random chance, oh, I got unlucky or my opponent got really lucky. Right, because you can't admit the vulnerability of having made a mistake or just done badly that day. Yeah, absolutely. Again, kind of back to Snow and, and Anima and Animus. I think a rigid approach to gender closes the door to a more complex expression of gender that actually seems more conducive to people's lived experience. So some people are born with XX chromosomes will discover that their truest inner self is expressed as male. And the opposite, some people with XY chromosomes will discover that their truest inner self is best expressed as female. Others will discover that no gender binary really fits their experience of themselves. As culture allows for more or less expression of individual humanity, this diversity is either integrated or suppressed. And I think we live in a more joyful culture when we're more allowed to live out our true selves. I mean, that's really the way I see my work as an analyst is helping people listen intently for that quiet little voice inside of themselves that is their truest selves. And then figuring out the ways to live that out into the world. I would even say that this podcast is one of the ways that I live myself out into the world. Yeah. I think of, I think it was Brad Pitt somewhat recently wore a skirt to something and press asked why. And he said, the world's on fire anyway. Who cares? Also, it's hot and this is cooler. Who needs more justification than that? Absolutely. Good for Brad Pitt. So Marie-Louise von France in her book, The Cat, talks about the great witch hunts of medieval Europe. She notes that in the time of courtly love, where love between actual men and actual women was celebrated, women could develop their own individuality. And they humanized men's anima. She argues that at a certain point, the culture switched to what she calls the cult of the Virgin Mary, where only love of the archetypal feminine was allowed. So courtly love, where men, knights, loved and 
wrote poetry and songs to individual women was replaced by this intense love of the Virgin Mary or the archetypal feminine. And she says this suppressed feminine individuality. And witches were generally women who were very individual. They were weird. They were odd. They were themselves. Over time, the persecution of witches became coupled with persecuting the individual elements in women. So at historical times where we're really splitting the anima into all good and all bad, which again, I think this Snow White fairy tale is an example of that, the anima fantasy is of a woman who doesn't curse or get angry, and according to von Franz, doesn't even know that she has a belly and genitals. The Disney version of Snow White is an exact depiction of this type of pure, sweet anima. The film opens with a truly vapid scene of snow cleaning the stairs, drawing water, and singing to the birds, wishing for the one I love. Personally, I immediately felt nauseated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've got someone who's at an age where she doesn't even know really what love means. It's just that wistful, oh, I want to fall in love. There's another show that does this more recently called Bridgerton, but they go about it in a very different way. There's these young women who are expected to dance and present themselves at court to attract a husband, ideally fall in love, and all the while not having the slightest idea of anything sexual or even where the babies they're expected to have will come from. It, it's like sounds crazy, but they really just had no information to the point where you may have to go to the service women in your household to actually learn what's going on because the mother wouldn't tell you because it's not proper. And this becomes a, a point of conflict between one of the characters and their mother, saying how you didn't prepare me for this at all. You talked around the whole thing. How are we expected to go out there without knowing what it's all working towards or, or any without of this Without knowing that we have a belly and genitals. Precisely. Yeah, I think that, again, that's an example of this virgin whore split that we see in our fairy tale and in so many other places. Good girls are pure. They're maternal without any sexuality. Bad girls are sexual, but not maternal. Now, how you have motherhood without sexuality is pretty baffling to me, but somehow that's supposed to magically happen. In the movie version of Snow White, we go on to have the bizarre and, to me, creepy relationship between Snow and the Seven Dwarfs. She's still a child, but she is maternal. She has to care for the adult dwarves who are childishly unable to wash dishes or even keep themselves clean, but are masculine and therefore supposed to protect Snow. There's this vague undertone of unconscious sexuality, but it's hidden in Snow who clearly consciously knows nothing of her belly, let alone her genitals. Snow's goodness is paired with her dependency, and I think this is where my nausea really comes, that being good is the same as being dependent. She begins her relationship with the dwarves by saying, 
I'll clean the house and surprise them, and maybe they'll let me stay. If Snow is properly subservient and feminine, perhaps the masculine dwarves will protect her. In the end, it is her stereotypically feminine ability to cook for them and her beauty that persuade the dwarves to allow her to stay. And I think, to its credit, that's something that's actually quite different from the Grimm. So in the story we read from Grimm, the dwarves are quite capable on their own and had a much more sort of contractual understanding with Snow rather than needing her around. They kept things clean and Snow was the one who sort of messed things up when she arrived. And the dwarves allow her to stay as long as she does the housework rather than her sort of charming them. It, it's They feel bad for her and she does grow on them over the course of her stay, but it doesn't have as much of that dynamic. Right. It's you do work for us and we will protect you. Right. There's a little bit more of an adult to adult, as you say, contract in that. Right. An understanding. Yeah. Von Franz notes that it's very painful for women if they have to perform according to such a pattern. This rigid anima image from Disney explains how uncomfortable it is to watch snow in the Disney version. She is an anima fantasy who never gets angry and is simultaneously sexual and denuded of sexuality. She's a model of many of the excruciating and impossible roles many of us were supposed to perform. Jung, in volume six on psychological type, says of anima, we project our anima or animus onto a loved or hated person. This works well, quote, as long as the behavior of the object is in harmony with the soul image. The object, however, will scarcely be able to meet the demands of the soul image indefinitely, although there are many women who, by completely disregarding their own lives, succeed in representing their husband's soul image for a long time. I think this is what we're seeing in the Disney Snow White is a masculine projection of what it is to be feminine, and I think it makes me so uncomfortable because, I mean, I wasn't alive in the 30s, but I'm close enough to that time to remember those expectations, to remember those boxes, to have had those be part of what I grew up with. And it, it yeah, I just really couldn't stand watching that movie. <laughs> yeah, which is why, in terms of the projecting these images, I think no matter how idyllic your relationship is with a partner, eventually you'll get in a fight. And that's it's good. That's healthy. We're different people. We have arguments. But it's important to kind of work out at some point that, oh, I'm putting this on them. But that's that's not right. And it's important for each of us to realize that the only way that we can live out somebody else's projection is, to quote Jung again, by disregarding our own lives. And that's not healthy. So, yes, I think that if we're going to have healthy relationships, we have to fight and disagree because we are our own people with our own agendas. We hopefully can 
partner. We can work things out. But we shouldn't subsume ourselves in somebody else's vision of us. You can't just carry the other person's projection without terrible consequences. Right? Well, I guess that's going to wrap it up for episode eight. Thank you all for listening. Our intro-outro music is a sample of Spring Movement One Allegro from The Four Seasons, composed by Antonio Vivaldi and performed by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Players. You can find the full version at freemusicarchive.org, link in the show notes. And if you like what you've been hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast feed of choice, as it really helps other people find the show. This show will always be free and available to all, but if you would like to monetarily support the show, you can now do so at coffee.com. That's spelled ko-fi.com slash Jungian ever after. Also, Dr. Adina Davidson is a certified Jungian analyst who offers telesessions. You can find out more about her practice at adinadavidson.com or her Psychology Today profile. We'll be with you again next month, but until then, we hope your month is filled with exploring the worlds of imagination and storytelling. Thank you.